Well, you guys got your Bibles and you're in chapter 2 of Thessalonians, the second epistle. Say amen. Amen. All right. So we learned last week that the second letter here could perhaps be a third letter to this church in Thessalonica because Paul warned them to not be troubled because of even something that have come in written form. All right. Um, we can find that in chapter 2, verse 1. Let's read that real fast. It says, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him. And remember we learned in the first letter, Paul taught us how the church would be gathered together as one body. Remember it was one people, one place, one purpose. Remember that? And we saw the different Hebrew words and Greek words that meant that. The rapture is a gathering of the entire church together into one place to do one thing. And that is to celebrate the lordship of him. Amen. And it is really cool because everybody is going to be there. I mean everybody. Paul the apostle. Maybe one of you might get to stand right next to him. You know. Great men of faith, Smith's Wigglesworth, praise God. You know, uh, the great Martin Lloyd-Jones, great Bible teacher from Britain. Charles Spurgeon, Wesley, Whitfield. Billy Graham. Billy Graham. Catherine Coleman. Edith Smith. Anybody know her? She's that grandma nobody can see that prays every night. You see? Even the no-names to the great names are going to be gathered together before him. Amen. And all at one time, praise God. So that is this great gathering that we're going to have. Um, And he says here now, verse 2, that he's beseeching him. And if you study Paul's letters, when he uses that word, I beseech you, he is urgently, you know, exhorting them to get a hold of this. It's not something that he's just saying lightly. He's he's very serious in what he's saying here. That you be not soon shaken in your mind or troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by a letter as from us, as that the day of the Lord is present, or that the day of the Lord is here, okay? And so, when we discussed last week, some translations say Lord, some say Christ. There's a a little controversy. I'm not going to pretend that there's not between which Greek manuscript you're interpreting from. Um, Your modern-day translations will read Lord. The King James will read Christ. Okay? Now, verse 3 says, But let no man deceive you by any means. All those different means that he just listed there. And the general consensus is that there was a letter going around warning the church that the day of the Lord was present and that they forged Paul's signature. And that's why later on in Paul's letters, he'll take a portion of the end and he'll say, this is signed by my own hand. Because there was a lot of forgery that was starting to go around and people were trying to, um, uh, they were trying to be imposters of Paul and his authority over the church. Now, um, now one of the things that he says here is that that the day of the Lord is present. Now at this period of time, this is when the, um, if I got my Caesars right, uh, Diocletia, I think is his name, this is one of the first persecutions, the major persecutions that started to hit the church in Rome. Up until this time, they pretty much had The Gentiles pretty much had no persecution. There was persecution of the Jews, 
when the church was first born, and we know that one of the disciples was um, beheaded, and they persecuted the early church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered abroad. And let it be known as a record that in the scriptures and in church history, any time the church was persecuted, it always grew. It always grew. You know, as a matter of fact, when you had Constantinople merging the Roman Empire with the church, that was Satan's way of saying, man, if you can't beat them, join them. Amen. Because for 300 years he tried to kill the church, and when he decided that he couldn't kill the church, he thought he would blend in the church with heathenistic practices. And so then the Roman Empire was merged with the church, and we have all of that. But that's a history lesson for another day. But I'm just wanting you to be aware that the Thessalonians were beginning to receive great persecution. And so they thought that because of the persecution that they were in the day of the Lord. And Paul was warning them that, look, just because you're in persecution doesn't mean that the day of the Lord has come. All right, Because a couple of things must manifest before the day of the Lord cometh. And that's what verse 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8, um, well, 7 are about. And so in summary, um, he says, verse 3, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day, the day of the Lord, will not come except there come a falling away first. And then the man of sin will be revealed. So what are the two things that must happen? A falling away and the man of sin revealed. Now that word falling away is a really um, well-known word that most of us know. It is the word apostasy or apostasia. And... Um, and one of the things, it's the falling away, apostasia means this. It is the defection from truth. Yeah. All right? That is what apostasia means. It means a defection from truth. Now, so people are going to defect from what is true, and then the man of sin will be revealed. And there is also a lot of Bible resources that say also the falling away could represent the church being lifted out of the earth. And with the church being lifted out of the earth, this defile or this defectiveness or defecting from the truth will occur simultaneously. All right. Now, now the Bible calls this man of sin the son of perdition. He's also called the beast in Revelation. He's called the little horn in Daniel. All right? A lot of people refer to him as the Antichrist. The Democrats refer to him as Donald Trump. That was just a joke. All right? So, but this man is going to be much worse than our local uh, and governmental candidates. I can tell you that now. But he's not going to come on the scene just yet. Because, look at verse 5. Now, Paul says, remember when I was with you, I told you these things. So he's reminding them what he already told them. And he said this once before in Thessalonians. And I'm just amazed. If you look at the book of Acts, you, you'll see that Paul had only been in this city for three weeks. Three Sabbath weeks, days it says, which is three weeks. Three Sabbath days. So he told these young Christians, he taught them a lot. And, you know, and that just goes to show how many have ever been told, um, you know, a new believer shouldn't tackle the book of Revelation. You know, oh, that's too deep. You're, you're too young to handle these things. Listen, Paul told these guys straight away. It's my conviction. I think as soon as you're born again, one of the first books you had to read is Luke, Acts, go straight to Revelation. Because 
This is something. It's the only book, Revelation says, that is, says that the reader and the hearer will receive a blessing. It's the only book in the Bible that commands a blessing for those that read it and hear what it has to say. Amen. So to me, the Holy Spirit has put specific emphasis on these type of books. And they shouldn't be brushed away, tucked somewhere underneath, thinking that it's just only for the really, you know, wise, been in the church for 20 years. No, Paul taught them these things when they were three weeks old in the Lord. Three weeks old. So he says, I'm going to remind you, remember when I was with you, did I not tell you these things? Tell you what things? The order that he just mentioned and this other thing that he's getting ready to say in verse 6. Because he says, now you know, because I've already told you, you know what restrains or what, or what restraineth. That he, the man of sin, might reveal in his time. So Paul said, he's, he's revealing. There is something that is restraining the man of sin from being revealed. Okay? We know that the day of the Lord isn't coming until the man of sin's revealed, until there's an apostasy. But something is restraining the, the, these events from happening. And he goes on to say, verse 7, The mystery of iniquity doth already work, but only he who now hinders will continue to hinder. Continue to hinder what? Continue to hinder the man of sin from being revealed until he be taken out of the way. And we saw last week in John 14, 16, that the Holy Spirit is the he in you and in me. The Holy Spirit is the he in the church. Okay? Jesus said, I must go away so that the comforter can come. For the he is with you, but he shall be what? In you, he tells us. All right, so, so Paul is teaching here that the, the hinderer or the restrainer is the Holy Spirit that dwelleth in the church. And when the church is taken out of the earth, then the full lawlessness and apostasy and defectiveness from the truth will come into the earth and that will set up a platform for the man of sin to be revealed. Okay? Now, you say, well, Jeremy, how do you know it's a he? Well, there's a couple of things, first of all. How, I mean, if you think about the bride. Now, we know, when if I say the bride, what would you automatically conclude? Church. The church. Now, a lot of people do conclude that the bride is the church. But if you actually was to put in your search field, in your Bible program, bride... You would not see bride mentioned in the context of the church in Scripture. The one place you would see it is, it'd be in Revelation where it talks about the city, the New Jerusalem, coming down adorned as a bride. Another place you'll see where it's said as bride is when God is referring to Israel in the Old Testament as the bride. Now, Jesus said the bridegroom... But he was talking to Jews who were awaiting the coming Messiah. The church is always called what? The body of who? Christ. Christ. Now, is Christ masculine? Yes. And what is Christ, who is he the head of? And what's the church to Christ? The body. So if the church is the body of Christ and he is the head of the church, does the church have a female body with a male head? You see? So the church is the body of Christ. And so I feel like the Holy Spirit has on purpose used masculine tense here when he's describing the Holy Spirit within the church. So in verse 8 then, he after, after the church is lifted out of the way he says then that wicked one some translations have wicked capitalized then that wicked one will be revealed whom the Lord will consume with the spirit of his mouth and he shall destroy him with the brightness of his coming even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. So remember, we've got a different person there. We've got Satan, 
the man of sin. And we've also got Revelation speaks of what's called the false prophet. We call it the, 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 the satanic trinity, if you like. You've got the dragon, you've got the beast, and you've got the false prophet. And the beast is a male figure that will be possessed by Satan. He will physically take over his body. And he will physically have power to do signs and wonders. And the false prophet will have these signs. And look what it says here in just a second here. In verse 10, verse 9. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and what? Lying, Lying wonders. With all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they receive not the what? The love, of the, truth. the love of the truth. How many know there is love in truth? Amen. Amen. There is love in truth. Because you know what? I find it a lot harder sometimes to tell the truth. And so when I try to bypass the truth, I do it for my own uh, comfort because I may not want the confrontation. So if I avoid confrontation by not telling the truth, who am I really loving? I'm loving myself. Exactly. I'm loving myself. But real love speaks the truth because Truth is what's important. And real love speaks the truth because truth changes. Amen. Jesus said, sanctify us by your truth. He said, what is truth? Your word is truth. Amen. Your word is truth. Now, he said here, they rejected the love of the truth. In other words, they rejected Jesus, they rejected the word, they rejected the gospel that had been preached throughout history that they might be saved. And for this cause, what cause? The cause that they rejected the truth. Because they rejected the truth, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. Or another good translation is the lie. So God is going to send them a delusion. All right. We have a delusion of the collusion at the moment. But God is going to send them a delusion. Right. With mixed with all of these lying wonders. And they are going to believe that this man is the coming Messiah that was promised. All right. So they're going to believe the lie. And then they all will be judged who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now get a picture of this. Get a picture of a man coming on the scene who's the greatest diplomat we've ever seen in our lifetime. I mean, when you look back in history and you think about some of the great diplomats that we've had. Um, anybody, any names come to anybody's mind? I mean, real good peacemakers. Anybody? Ronald Reagan, he was, they say he was a good diplomat. I think maybe, you know, people like uh, Kennedy, Roosevelt, uh, you know, different great leaders maybe. Um, it's funny, we, don't, we can't really think of any good names, can we? Maybe there's not been, you know. But this guy is going to work wonders. I mean, you think Bill Clinton was good when he was able to bring... The Ireland and Northern Ireland peace treaties, you know, I mean, Belfast and Dublin were at war with each other over the British crown. And Clinton was able to come in there and he was able to bring peace between those two countries. And it was a big deal at that time. I'm, I'm sure some of you remember that. That was a bloody warfare. Well, how many American presidents have tried to bring peace between Israel and the Palestinians? I mean, it's ongoing. I never forget that one scene where that one president tried to get uh, the two leaders together, and they did that, that awkward handshake where they kind of fumbled with each other. And then there was that one moment where they were fighting over who was going to go through the door first. It's just not been very good. And it's always been, you know, one step forward, two steps back. But this guy that comes on the scene, 
He is going to have the power to bring in this treaty. And when we learned, remember we studied Daniel 9, it said the same guy, the coming prince, Daniel 9 calls him, the soon coming prince, he will confirm the covenant or the peace treaty with Israel for seven years. And part of that covenant is going to be somehow or some way to create a land grant that allows Israel to reconstruct a third temple and begin to offer uh, animal sacrifice again. So if you go over there right now and you try to set up and start building a temple, you're going to have World War III on your hands. But somehow or another, this guy is going to be able to work a treaty that allows Israel to build its temple. They're ready to build their temple. They've got, the, they've got everything ready. Um, you know, it, does, it wouldn't surprise me that the moment that they got the, the permission to build that temple, that they'd have that thing constructed in less than a year. I mean, they have everything that they could possibly think of. Mm -hmm. The only thing that I don't know what they have, and there's controversy over this, and some think that they have it, some think they don't, some think that they found it but can't get to it, is the Ark of the Covenant. Where's the Ark? Interesting that the Ark of the Covenant represents the presence of God, and it'd be interesting to see how they would get away with constructing that temple and having sacrifices without the Ark. I don't know what they will do. We'll see. But I won't be here. Some of you believe that. Some of you may not. Now, but here's the thing. There's going to be a strong delusion that comes on the people of this day. And this guy that comes in, this man of sin, according to Matthew, according to Daniel, According to all the different places in, in Scripture, he is going to walk into the temple and he is going to set himself up as Jehovah. And it is at that point in time where when the Jews were, had a strong delusion and they believed all the lying wonders when they thought he was the Messiah, when he sets himself up in the temple as Jehovah, then that is when the light bulb is going to come on that this is an imposter. And they're going to flee for their lives. The Bible calls it the time of Jacob's trouble, the great tribulation, which refers to the latter half of the seven-year period. Daniel chapter 9 says that in the midst of the week, he will break the covenant that he makes with them. So three and a half years into this covenant, he's going to commit the abomination of desolation is what the King James translation is. In other words, it's an abomination to put anything other than the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. All right? In the Old Testament, Eli's sons were slain by the presence of God for just bringing the wrong incense sticks in. They didn't bring the incense that God ordered to come into his presence. They brought in their own, and the Lord wiped them out. All right? That is a holy place, amen? It's a sacred place. Now, when he comes in, he's going to put himself in the holy of holies. That is an abomination, what? That makes desolate because the Jews are ordered at that moment to run for their lives when they see that. Because immediately at that point, he is going to turn on th those people and he's going to begin a mass slaughter. Something you think World War II and Auschwitz was bad? I mean, how many people did they kill in just three or four years? The Bible says, unless the Lord had shortened the days for the elect's sake, he would wipe them all out. I mean, we're talking about mass genocide here. All right? They flee for their lives. And as this man is hunting down the children of Israel, hunting down the 12 tribes with the 144,000 sealed with the Holy Ghost, Holy Ghost-filled evangelists preaching the kingdom of, of God and the gospel and the Messiah, Jesus 
comes down from heaven with us to the Mount of Olives. His big toe, when it touches that olive, the mount, is going to split it wide open. People say the Muslims, they tried to keep Jesus out of the eastern gate by blocking it up. Well, I'm telling you what, when Jesus' big toe hits planet Earth, it's going to send a crack right down Earth. It's going to split that gate wide open. There's going to be such a topography change that the Dead Sea is going to become a living sea because the waters are going to, it's going to crack the earth when he makes that ravine that goes through Mount of Olives all the way through Jerusalem. The whole river of Jordan is going to run down through the Dead Sea and out the Dead Sea, take a right-hand turn and go straight out the Mediterranean. And that whole area is going to be life again where it was once dead. Now, at this point, the Jews, Zechariah says, they are going to look upon him whom they pierced, and they are going to know that he is their delivering Messiah. And that is when Israel will be delivered, and that's when they will be saved by the Messiah that they have been looking for all these years. Now, a beautiful picture of this is the story of Joseph. When Joseph was betrayed by his brothers and sold into slavery in Egypt, when his brothers recognized Joseph, they were fearful. But Joseph, what did he do? He embraced them. You think when Jesus comes back to earth, he is going to cast the Jews into into, into, into hell? For, for, for the things that they did to him? No, he's going to have the same heart just like Joseph. And what did Joseph say? What God meant, what, what you meant for evil, God turned for good. Because Joseph going into the pit, right? Him being exalted was the salvation of Egypt through his wisdom. And what does Egypt represent? The world or the Gentiles. Jesus being rejected and being cast out was our redemption. Had the Jews not put Jesus on the cross, I would not be sitting here today and neither would you. Amen? Amen. Because of them rejecting Jesus, it has brought salvation to us Gentiles. Amen? Amen. Amen. And that's why we're not to turn on our brothers and sisters. Just the same way that Joseph didn't turn on his brothers. Amen. Because the Lord is going to save Israel. Amen. Amen. There is a time clock for Israel that is separate to the Gentiles and the church. And that's why I believe Daniel is very clear. He says this period of seven years has been determined for your people and what? For your holy city, he says. Now, I want you to do something for me real quick tonight, if you can. I need you to take your hands and grab Matthew 24. And once you found Matthew 24, I want you to then keep your, do your hand like this. Keep your hand in Matthew 24 and grab Luke 21. And I want you to do it so that you can hold the pages in between and go back and forth really fast. Luke 21. So I got 24 here and I got 21 there. So just grab it like that and don't let go of it. So you can just do that back and forth. All right. Luke 24 and 21. Or if you got a smartphone, you're blessed and highly favored because... You got my little archaic method beat. Now, look at Matthew 24 if you're there. Say amen. Amen. It says, Now Jesus went out of the temple, in verse 1, he departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him, and he said, and they showed him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See you not all these things? I say to you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. All right? Now, keep your hand there and go over to Luke 21. 
And we're going to look at the, uh, we're going to start, he starts in um, verse 5. Now it says, And some of them spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts. And he said, As for these things which you behold, the days will come in which there shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. All right? Back to 24. So he sat down upon the Mount of Olives. Where did he sit? And the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and the end of the age. All right? So they said, two questions, Lord. When and what? When's the end coming, and what will be the sign of the end coming? All right? Now look back over there in 21. Verse 7. And they asked him, saying, Master, but when shall these things be, and what sign will be where they'll be when these things shall come to pass? Alright. Now back over to 24. So Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ. And they shall deceive many. Verse 6. And you'll hear of wars, rumors of wars. See that you be not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. And there shall be famines and pestilence and earthquakes in various places. A good word for nation shall rise against nation is ethnos. Ethnic wars is a good translation there. Amen? Not just France versus England, but the racial tensions that we have in our lands. Now he goes on to say in verse 8, these are the beginning of sorrows. What are the beginning of sorrows? False Christs, wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines, pestilence, which is disease. All right? Earthquakes. These different things are the beginning of sorrows. So we're going to categorize that as the beginning of sorrows, those things. All right? Now back to Luke. In verse 8, he says, Take heed that you be not deceived, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ. I am verse, I'm in verse 8. The time draws near, go you not therefore after them. But when you shall hear of wars and commotions, be not terrified. For these things must first come to pass, but the end is not at once. All right? I like that where he says, the King James says, by and by. But it's not at once. The end is not going to be like, it's just here, like the rapture. The rapture says within a twinkling of an eye, it's going to be instant. But the end is like a woman going into labor. All right? Anybody experience that? Anybody have experience in that? That baby just didn't, you didn't wake up all of a sudden and boom. There it was. All right? It, it, it grew, didn't it? Those labor pains grew, all right? The beginning of sorrows is like, it's like birth pains. It's, it comes in waves. I mean, let's think about it. Man, did, did World War I look like Armageddon? It looked like Armageddon. Yeah. But it wasn't Armageddon. How do we know it wasn't Armageddon? Well, there was no temple. There wasn't even an Israel in 1912. Okay? So there's no way there could have been an Armageddon. But I find it very interesting that John Darby, C.I. Schofield, uh, Clarence Larkin, a lot of these dispensationalists during the beginning of World War I, God gives revelation to the church about how to divide God's word and have understanding between the church and Israel. When you would look like you were in the middle of the last days that Jesus was coming. But God gives teaching. He gives revelation to the church in the, in the late 1800s. And, you know, these things and people realize, yeah, I mean, World War I's going on. It's completely devastating to humanity but we're not in the last days. Jesus hasn't come. 
And it's a similar scenario that Paul is preaching to the Thessalonians. You're looking around and you're thinking that Jesus is coming or that you're in the last days. I hear a lot of guys on TV and on YouTube saying, we're in the last days. I heard a guy the other day say, we're already in the seventh seal. I'm like, these guys are already saying, we're in this seal, we're in this seal. Oh, no, one, the Wormwood guy. There was a guy on, on YouTube, he said, because Chernobyl in Russia, the nuclear meltdown in Chernobyl, you guys familiar with that? Back in the, when was that, the 70s or the 80s, something like that? Because, 86, because Chernobyl means Wormwood, he thought we were in that part of Revelation where the star falls from heaven and poisons the waters. I'll just leave that out there. <laughs> I'm just saying. And what's going on here? Guys are trying to take scripture and they're trying to compare with what's going on around us. And they're trying to put our own current events into the timeline of the book of Revelation. Guys, prophecy teachers have been doing this for years and they've been getting it wrong for years. How Lindsay did it, Tim LaHaye, a lot of guys missed it, man. And they ended up, you know, one guy wrote 1988. They thought Jesus Christ was coming back in 1988. You got the book, Dan? Yeah, because they're trying to take our present circumstances. But what is the, what is the sign that Jesus gave to them when they asked for it. Looky here. Back to Matthew. Verse 15. When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. All right? We know what that is. If y'all know what that is, nod your head to me. We know what that is. That's the sign that he gave them. But before he got to that, look up um, after verse 8. Where Remember what it says? Verse 8, all these are the beginning of sorrows. Look at verse 9. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then shall they deliver you up. Or in other words, after, after this, after the beginning of sorrows... They shall deliver you up. Okay? Now, go over to Luke. Now, we just got, we just got in Luke, verse 8, 9, 10, and 11. What chapter? We're in chapter 21 still. You keeping your finger there? We're, we're, we're doing this, Doris. Remember, we're going to... Got 24 and 21 together here. All right? So, in verses 8, 9, 10, and 11... He talks about the beginning of sorrows. All the different things that he talked about in Matthew are the same there in Luke. Nation shall rise against nation, verse 10. Great earthquakes in verse 11. Famines, pestilences, fearful sights in heaven. All right? But look at verse 12 now. Verse 12 says, But before all these things, they shall lay their hands on you and persecute you. Luke's gospel says, before the beginning of sorrows, they'll put their hands on you. If you go over to Matthew, Matthew says, after these things, after the beginning of sorrows, they'll put your hands on you. We have two different timelines in Matthew 24 and Luke 21. If you were to glance over this portion of scripture, you would think they were talking about the same period of time. But look what he says here, in carrying on in verse uh, carrying on in verse twelve of chapter twenty-one. But before all these things, they shall lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogue and into prisons, being brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake, and it shall turn to you for a testimony. Settle it therefore in your hearts, not to meditate what you shall give an answer. All right. Now look at verse twenty. But when you shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that its desolation is near. So Luke speaks of Jerusalem being encompassed by the armies of Rome. 
In 70 AD, he says, when you see Jerusalem be encompassed with armies, but Matthew's gospel says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. So one speaks of a future of Israel when the new temple will be built because he already tells them it's going to be destroyed. But if he tells them first, this temple's going to be destroyed, but then he says there's going to be the abomination that make it desolate, everybody knows that's when the Antichrist goes into a temple. So he's saying this one's going to be destroyed, another one's going to be built. When you see that, look, that's what he's saying in Matthew. But in Luke, he's saying before these things. Matthew, he's saying after these things. So after the beginning of sorrows comes the abomination of desolation. But before these things, before the beginning of sorrows, when you see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that its desolation is near. He's speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem, which happened in 70 AD, which we also saw in Daniel chapter 9, verse 26. He says, they shall destroy the city. Then he says in verse 21, Then let them flee into the mountains, and let them depart, who are in the midst of it depart, and let not them that are in the countries enter into it. All right, so he carries on. He talks about the, the different things here that are going to happen. And I wanted to get all the way down to verse 37 of that same chapter. And in the daytime, he was teaching in the temple. Now, where did Matthew's gospel say he was teaching? Mount of Olives. Two different discourses, two different time periods. One before the beginning of sorrows, one after the beginning of sorrows. All right? One discourse for the church, one discourse for the Jews. Josephus has record that there was not a single Christian that was consumed at the destruction of, the, of Jerusalem in 70 AD. They took the words of Jesus to heart and they fled Jerusalem. When they saw, um, was it Titus? I can't remember the son's name of the emperor, but when they saw him surrounding Jerusalem, they fled. You've been to that fortress there. What's that fortress called you went to? Masada. Masada? Masada. Where they, where they, I mean, there was a great battle at Masada. Yeah. Oh, yeah. A great battle. But the Romans won. Yeah. They ransacked Israel. Not one single stone was left on the temple. They can't even figure out where the temple is now. Now, a lot of people say it's right there at that big wall. Well, there's a lot of architects that find that highly debatable. There's a lot of guys that think that's actually the fortress of Antonia. So when you go over there into Jerusalem and you're looking at that model, that's a debatable model. There's a lot of good experts out there who believe that's completely false. So what's going on? What's happening? Are they already starting to believe the delusion? Is the delusion already starting to happen? But here's what I do know. According to these scriptures, Matthew 24 and Matthew 21 are not the same. One speaks of an abomination of the desolation, which is spoken of by Daniel the prophet. One speaks of Jerusalem being destroyed in 70 AD. Okay? So when you compare those scriptures with each other, you get a pretty good picture of what the Lord is saying here. I think it is so beautiful how Jesus is... When was Jesus crucified? 33, 35 AD roughly? Give or take... Jesus tells the disciples, gives them a, a, a perfect sign. He said, when you see the city surrounded, and they did surround Jerusalem. The Roman, you read, you read Josephus' writings, it's picture perfect the way Jesus describes it here. When they surrounded the cities, the Christians took the word of the Lord to heart, and they fled the city. You know, the church was in Jerusalem. Antioch hadn't been established yet. The church was in Jerusalem. 
the church, by heeding the words of Jesus, was able to preserve the gospel of the Lord Jesus by getting the heck out of there. Amen? So the same words that Jesus gave them to help themselves, the same words, the same signs, Paul is revealing to the church in Thessalonica, chapter 2. That's why he said, listen, guys, when you see these things, you know, you need to know. One place I wanted to also look at that. Sorry, I, to, I can't, took you out of Luke too quick. Verse, chapter 21. Go back there real fast. Back to Luke 21. I pulled us out of there too quick. My mistake. And I want to be at, um, let's see here, verse 34 of 21. Now, this is the warning to us today, okay? Because remember, in this chapter, we're before these things. We're before the beginning of sorrows here, okay? Matthew is after the beginning of sorrows. Before the beginning of sorrows. Now, yes, we have earthquakes and we have famines and diseases, but like birth pangs, they, they come in waves. Amen? They come in waves. I mean, you look at Hitler in World War II. That was a genocide. That was a holocaust. Was that the that was coming? No, but it was a pretty good example. It was a good sample size, wasn't it, of what was to come as a prophetic warnings. Amen? Prophetic warnings to us as the church. So here he says in verse 34, now listen, you need to take heed to yourselves that lest at any time your hearts would be overcharged with surfeiting. Wow, what a word, surfeiting. We just got to look that up real quick. Carousing, is that what it says? Luke 21, get my little verse here, 34. Take heed. That your hearts not be overcharged. The word surfeiting is crepale, which means debauchery. All right? Glut. Carousing. Partying, perhaps. Rave parties. Coachella. You know, anybody know what Coachella is? It's that huge festival they have out in Palm Springs every year where all of our young people go. It's like a modern-day Woodstock. They have it every year. You thought Woodstock was crazy. This thing makes Woodstock look like Sesame Street. It is debauchery on steroids. It's awful. And there's bigger festivals than that that are going on in the world. Okay? And you know what's crazy? There's a lot of Christians at these things. Or they say they're Christians. Why? Because they don't think Jesus is coming back. Amen. They don't think the Lord's going to return. They think they're going to have some time to get it sorted out. Oh, don't come back, Lord Jesus. Let me party. Let me marry. Let me, you know, start a family. But as in the days of Noah, they were eating and they were marrying and they were just moving along. Now Luke warns us in our age. This is for our personal warning here. Take heed to yourselves. Lest at any time our hearts would be overcharged. Overcharged. Just taken over. By carousing and drunkenness. And the cares of this life. So that that day when he cometh in the clouds. Would take us unaware. For like a snare, it will come on all them that dwell on the face of the whole earth. But what's he say? Watch ye therefore and pray always that you may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Amen. Pray that we're counted worthy to escape these things. I can't stand it when I hear these teachers say, oh, man, you guys are just looking for some great escape. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I am. Thank you. For one thing, in red, the Lord told me, pray that I count myself worthy to escape. So I'm not ashamed to say, cometh 
Quickly, Lord, get me out of this place. Where is that ejection seat? I want to be, I don't want to go. Why do I want to go through the tribulation? Why do I want to go through that? First of all, the Bible says the wrath of God, we're not appointed to that. So, you know, I mean, even for those that think that somehow or another we must somehow go through the tribulation, although you know my conviction on that, I do believe wholeheartedly it's a period that's set aside for the Jews. God turned rivers into blood during Moses' time. I've never in the church history seen the Lord work in the earth like he worked in Exodus. In the same way God worked in Exodus is the same way he's going to work in Revelation. But who was he dealing with in Exodus? The deliverance of who? The Jews. In Revelation, he's dealing with the deliverance of the Jews. The church doesn't need to be delivered because we're not delivered. We're gathered. We're gathered. We were delivered when we asked Jesus to come be the Lord of our lives and cleanse us of our sins. We don't need a deliverance. We're saved. We're sanctified. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. Amen. So then he goes on to say here that you should be counted worthy to escape. All right. So when you hear these guys out there saying, oh, and they try to belittle you like, oh, you ain't got enough faith to make it through. Why do I need enough faith to make it through? I, the Lord says, I will be counted worthy to escape. I want to escape. Look, I've been having, living by faith for the last 40 years. Why do I now all of a sudden got to face the mark of the beast to prove that I love Jesus? Paul never taught that. Paul said in Galatians, by faith you are saved. Amen. Not by deflecting the mark of the beast. It's not deflecting the mark of the beast that makes us saved. It's belief on Jesus Christ that makes us saved. And when we believe on that, when he comes in the clouds, we are gathered unto him. Amen. Those that did not believe on that, they're going to have to work that out. And those that, like he said here, those that did not pray, those that were taken with the cares of this life, those that wanted to go to Coachella and live like the devil and then come home and say they're a Christian, they're not worthy to escape. If you go real quick over to Revelation, oh, I'm, oh man, I'm out of time. Oh, man, I, I, that went by fast. Last verse, last verse here real quick. In Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, Revelations chapters 2 and 3, I meant last verse that I'm going to turn to. Um, let's look at... Uh, Okay, we're in chapter 2, and there's a couple of churches I want to hit here. Um, All right, so the first one is... Is in Thyatira. All right. So Thyatira was a pretty rough church. All right. Thyatira taught. It says in verse 20, I have a few things against you. You allowed that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. So here's a church that was preaching that it's okay to have sex outside of marriage. Here's a church that was teaching it's okay to smoke pot. Here's a church that was teaching it's okay to go to parties and be full of drunkenness. Okay? All the things that the early apostles who gave their lives, all they did is they wrote a simple letter and said, look, we're not going to put a lot of hard tasks on you guys. We're simply going to ask you to this. Don't eat things sacrificed to idols. Stay away from fornication. That's all we're asking. But these guys came along in this church and they began to teach that this thing was okay. And the Lord had a problem with it. And he says, Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and they that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. Okay? So right there in verse 22, he said, Unless they repent of their deeds, I'm going to cast them into the great tribulation. 
So here we have a group of Christians who think they're Christians, but they're believing bad doctrine, and all of a sudden they're going to wind up in the Great Tribulation. Now look over in Philadelphia in verse 7. Um, 3-7. So he says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write these things. And he has nothing bad to say about these guys. He says, um, verse 9, it says, Behold, I will take them of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and they are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before my feet and to know that I have loved you. All right, talking to the church. Now, what did Paul say? A Jew is not somebody who's born of Abraham, but a Jew is a Jew who is circumcised, not in foreskin, but in heart. Amen? Amen. You can cut the flesh all day long, but unless the heart is circumcised unto God, you are not a child of God. Amen. Our child of God is uh, your, your relationship or your, your position with God is not determined by your natural birth. Amen? Yes. Now, he says, behold, I love how he says, I'll make them come and worship before your feet. And to know that I have loved thee. Well, who's he talking about? He's talking about the church that will rule and reign with Christ in the millennium. Who's going to rule and reign? The church is going to rule and reign with Jesus in the thousand-year reign. That's why he said, behold, I have made you what? Priests and kings. That title is given to the church. Priests and kings. You never see that title given to the Israelites. The people that make it through the tribulation into the millennium, he's saying right here, I'm going to cause them to come and worship at your feet and to know that I have loved you. Wow, that's heavy stuff. Verse 10, because you have kept the word of my patience, I will also keep you from what? The hour of temptation which shall come upon the what? The whole world to try them that dwells on the earth. Okay? So here we have one church that has wrong doctrine, that's surfeiting, drunkenness, corruption. They will be thrown into the great tribulation. Here we have another church that is staying strong for what it believes in. They're staying true to the Lord. They're counting themselves worthy to escape, and they will be saved from the hour of temptation. All right? So all I can say is this. I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. I believe that God is coming for a church that is looking for him. But for the church that is not looking for them, I don't think they're going. And so on that case, there probably is a mid-trib or a post-trib for those guys. But for the people that are looking for the coming of the Lord and are living and counting themselves worthy and having a hopeful patience. Why would we who are hopefully waiting for the Lord, all of a sudden God be just casting us into disappointment? It's not there, guys. It's not in the Bible, okay? And like I said last week, you'll find a lot of different opinions on this, but I can't find it. Guys, I scratch my hair out. Every night I ask my wife another question. How about this? I'm, all, I'm, I'm, I'm in this thing, man. I'm trying to find it. Because I listen to these guys that I love and respect, and I'm like, well, how can, how can they come up with that? Yeah. And here's the thing, guys. The bottom line is this. We have to live a life that is holy Amen. and pure, looking for Jesus Amen. to come and redeem us. Amen. We have to suffer now, not then. How do we suffer? Well, it's not easy being cheesy. It's not easy living for the Lord. If you're really living, it's easy if you're pretending like you're living for the Lord and going to Coachella. And when the guys say, hey, let's go out tonight, we're going over and trying the new craft brand. Oh, yeah, it's so easy. Oh, yeah, let's go down to, you know, the, over the Rhine. You know, they have this new place they're opening up, man. They got the best craft beer in town. Oh, there's nothing wrong with a little craft beer. Listen, man, I'm telling you, now is the day for the church to be sober. Quit trying to figure out whether it's right or wrong. Can we, can we not? Man, let's just live holy lives so the fire of God can consume us so we can save people from the lake of fire. Amen. Yeah. Praise God. Thank you, Pastor. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.